This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. I had a most enjoyable conversation with Jim Mazur, founder and owner of the handicapping data service Progressive Handicapping. I got tuned into Jim's sire rating product originally pioneered by a gentleman named Mike Helm many years ago and have used it since then to author many nice scores based on the information gleaned from that product. As you will hear, Jim is responsible for a number of other publications driven by the data collection effort of his uh, staff, let's call it. (laughs) I love Jim's story because it's a tale of a passion becoming an idea, becoming a business. Many wise people have remarked over the years that if you do something you love, you never have to work a day in your life. When you listen to Jim, you know he is having fun at it. He's a real conversationalist. You'll enjoy this one. So joining us on today's podcast is Jim Mazur, founder and sole owner. Jim, I have that correct, right? Of Progressive Handicapping? That's correct. A South Florida-based organization that publishes annually a vast array of handicapping data, tool sets, and information, including things like Detailed ratings of sires and dam sires, meet specific data for various tracks, trainer angles on the various circuits, as well as special Triple Crown and Breeders' Cup analyses. But Jim, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. Second of all, second of all, I'm sure I'm not doing justice to all the work that you guys do down there in your in your company. Correct? Um, no, you got you got a pretty good um, overview of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a full year cycle, and um, you know we started. Strictly, it was a, it was a hobby actually. Uh, it was okay. a side business where um, a, a gentleman named John Angelo had written a book called the Saratoga Scorecard that he did manually. He, he took all the statistics and he and he um, compiled them manually, oh and my. then he wrote these little Bill James like profiles on the trainers, and um, that was in the eighties. Um, and I was at a, uh, a, a crossroads in my uh, financial business career. Uh, I was a CFO of a company for many years, and the company, the company's owner, decided to shut it down. Okay. So I was looking for a new a new avenue. And when I was in college at Duke University, I was a sports editor of the daily newspaper. So that was a pretty big, um, mm. a pretty big job. Yeah. And I. I might have gone into journalism, except that I was also an accounting major, and it was so easy to get a job uh, coming out of school um, that 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 sort of forced my hand a little bit. But I decided to maybe go back into journalism, and I called John Angelo and said, do you mind if I do a similar book uh, about Gulfstream, Gulfstream Park? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt like you know, he started the genre, so I, I should ask him in case he had any ideas of uh, expanding. Mm. And he did, he did not. He had his hands full. Uh, he was not very computer literate. Yeah. And, and don't like forget, it. we're talking about uh, late 80s here. 
So uh, everything was in its infancy. There was no internet. There was no simulcasting at this point. You had to, uh, if you were going to bet oh, Gulfstream, wow. you had to be down at Gulfstream. Okay. So, so I, um, I set out uh, during my year's severance that I, I uh, negotiated okay. uh, to compile all this data about Gulfstream with the idea that there wasn't enough information in the racing form to answer some of the questions like, you know, who's good just on the turf? Who's good mm. uh, with first-time starters? Who's good with this jockey and, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing? So I, I put, you know, just every piece of data I could put in, and then I, I hired a, a programmer, and we rudimentally went through, and we got the answers that we were looking for, and I produced this crude uh, publication called the Gulfstream Handicapper um, in, I think it was 1989. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, um, I had a job offer to go back into the, into the business world. So I did that, but I continued to do the book. I think we sold like, I don't know, 75 of them. And maybe my my mom and dad bought 25. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, a huge success, but, um, the fellow who wrote for the, um, the racing writer for the, uh, Miami Herald. And then back in those days, there were specific beat writers that mm. covered nothing but horse racing, right. um, believe it or not. Um, and he, he took a shine to it, wrote a nice, uh, oh, wow. piece about it and got me some credentials to go to Gulfstream and then the Calder and even Hialeah at the time. And I just sort of continued to do it as a, as a goof. And a few years after that, I got a, a call from someone at Monmouth Park in the Meadowlands and said, you know, we saw your publication. We'd like to know if you could do something like that for our track. So they weren't going to pay me to do it, but they would help me uh, market it. And they did. Okay. And so I expanded to Meadowlands. I expanded to Monmouth. And for many years on Memorial Day, uh, we gave that book away, The Monmouth Handicapper. And in, in those days, boy, we were getting 150, 200 people to come to the track to just get a free book and spend the day and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that, that started to go pretty well. And then um, I was in the Gulfstream press box after maybe the third or fourth Breeders' Cup had been run. Mm-hmm. And I was commiserating with a gentleman named Peter Mallet, who was a Canadian that came down for the winter, about how poorly I had done. I, I, I said, you know, I should be able to to be able to handicap these races, but I just, I got crushed. Um, so he mentioned that we should collaborate and, um, take a look at the, uh, the history of, of the small history of each of the races and see if we couldn't find some common threads. And that led to our book of crushing the cup, a collaboration okay. that we've had ever since. Yeah. I think we're in the 26th year of that one. Um, and I also did the same thing then for the Triple Crown races, for the Derby, mm-hmm. Preakness, and Belmont. And um, when simulcasting came into play, uh, and then the internet hit, um, that's when the decision was made to, uh, to to scrap the day job and go into this full time. Okay, okay. And um, my, uh, the woman who was watching my small kids at the time was my assistant. <laughs> and we, uh, we, we started from nothing and... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's grown into a nice, um, fun, year-round business that you know I still enjoy. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. A lot of people are amazed that we could do stuff like that. And 
through the years, I've, I've had good collaborations with people. Um, Peter Mallet, like I said, was mm-hmm. crushing the cup. I hooked up with a guy named Hank Cornbase who came to me and we, we developed what's called a blue chip trainer angle book, which are 15 to 20 high percentage plays at each of the meets that we cover. And, and that book has been very, very successful um, for a limited audience, but very successful for those that want to spend a hundred hours on the book. Um, so that's, uh, that's where I'm at. And wow. it's, uh, it's good. The, the only problem, as you know, is that the industry is struggling with a, uh, a huge amount of issues, and it's uh, it's not growing. It's not growing. Right, right. Uh, it, it, you answered actually one of my questions. Is this still fun for you? Because I, you know, thinking about uh, Jim, the vast array of publications, you know, both online and print based, still that you're responsible for. It actually, was one of my big questions: Is does this still still feel like fun to you, or is it, does it feel like a job? And it's good to hear that it still feels like fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it, it has its cyclical moments. For example, uh, between like October 5th and the Breeders' Cup, it, it's just oh, yeah. 24-7 kind of thing. And it's yeah. a good thing. I mean, it's a, it's a great energy. It, it reminds me of, of the Super Bowl because it's an event and right. it's not a meet. A meet goes on. So people who don't buy, let's say at the beginning uh, three weeks before Saratoga, they could still buy the first week of Saratoga and play for four or five weeks. It's not like it's it's over, right? Um, right. But with like a Derby or a um, uh, a Breeders' Cup, there's all this energy focused onto one weekend or a day, and then poof, you know, it's over. Yep. Uh, and, and then the phones, it's like crickets the next couple weeks. Um, Which is okay too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. No. It's yeah. Great. You know, yep. you get a chance to catch up and, and, and recharge your batteries, and um, but it gets um, it's it just it's a a very difficult couple weeks because of all the detail that we're putting out. Sure. Yeah. And when 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 you get the multitude of trainers that are cross entering horses. And then they, you know, then they finally decide where oh, they're going. Wow. And, yeah. You know, and then yeah. we have to react because we only have a day or two. Um, you know, you do what you used to do in college. You, you pull all nighters, you know. And, uh, <laughs> At this age, you're still pulling all nighters, Jim. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. all. It's all good. It's yeah. all good stuff. So. So it sounds like Jim, like a lot of uh, overnight success stories, it was years in the making, right? Um, you know, you you started out as you said back, just compiling data by hand, which I, you know, is is just mind-boggling, right? Putting that all together. And then it's not actually even so much the putting it all together is is sorting it, right, into into manageable and digestible chunks, I guess, right? Yes, yes. Um, we, <laughs> I started out with, a you know, a rickety old computer and, a, and a, an application called DBase. I remember um, DBase. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure anybody who was back then would, would remember DBase. Yeah. That was really the only... Um, database-oriented software. Now you have Access and, and probably four or five others. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and that was a lot of uh, uh, sleepless nights where I just sat there with result charts and oh manually yeah. input them into fields um, and hope that I had collected all the information because if I missed one, uh, a field, I would have to go back through everything. But I was only doing one track, so it was, it was a little more finite, and at that time, if you remember, um, Gulfstream was was um, sh- uh, sharing dates with Hialeah and Calder, so Calder had the brunt of the dates. They had the summer, and oh, Gulfstream only okay. had a 
they would they would flip flop with Hialeah, and the prime dates were always for like right after January first, the right. middle of March. Right, right. And then and then there'd be a um, a flip flop. Sometimes Hialeah would get those dates. Sometimes Gulfstream, and then Gulfstream would run from you know March fifteenth, which would be like the Flamingo Day. Mm-hmm. Um, right after that, they would kick in and then do the Florida Derby, and they'd run through the the Kentucky Derby, so they'd get that day. Um, when simulcasting came into play, so um, it was it was sort of compact, um, just like it was at Saratoga when John Angelo started um, his sure, uh, yep. venture, and and you know that was such an exciting meet um, because you you only really had one chance as a trainer, and so there were all sorts of intrigues and. You know, guys shipping in, you know, at six in the morning uh, with the van and the, <laughs> the hired help from the farms and, you know, in Maryland. And, you know, it was just it was just great intrigue. And, you know, uh, it, it's totally changed now with a with a five. The longer meet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's still exciting, but it's it's sort of like a regular meet now. It's not really that special, um, except hopefully for the quality um, and even that sort of you know, eroded over time. Yeah. So this is America, Jim. Nothing, nothing exceeds like excess. I always like to say, right? No. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because it, it's so true is that racing would be much, much better off with eight races on a, on a, on a weekend. Oh, um, yes. You know, with, yep. with packed fields and yep. I, I'm almost sure the handle would be the same. And it would be a lot more exciting for people because the payoffs would be um, would be better. They always are with 14, 12 horse, 14 yep. fields. Oh. Um, it's simple and, math, and, really, right? I mean, it comes yeah. down to it, simple math, yeah. Exactly. And so it's sort of like they keep milking the, the goose that laid the golden egg. And they, you can see it at Saratoga. You know, eventually that's going to stretch into July 4th. And um, it's just, they just don't want to want to conserve and it's a it's a myriad of factors it's it's the fact that the horsemen are are pushing for more dates mm-hmm. uh or, or as many dates and yep. and want more races and, and and the horsemen and everything so what's happening is that they're pushing a finite horse population that's not growing to the max and and i think bill that that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of these breakdowns uh it might be because of the track in Santa Anita that they, they have some moisture issues and things like that. But I think overall they're just they're just pressing the horse into something that it really isn't meant to be doing. Um, I think that's lifetime. a much I think that's a much bigger factor, Jim. To be honest with you, than, than the surface. It, it, we can't deny the surface. The, the rain out there because I was out there this past winter was unbelievable. But um, you know, I talked to a couple of jockeys out there when I was out there and they, you know, I, I won't say the one, but he looked right at me and he said, Bill, it's not the surface. Um, and right. the underlying message was that horses were running that really sh- didn't belong out there at that point. You know, um, right. Right. Uh, you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned Saratoga and, and I live up here in the Northeast and I'm out there two or three times every summer because it's just such a special event. But I'll be honest with you, uh, by the time Labor Day rolls around, I'm probably like every resident of Saratoga Springs. I am ready for that thing to be over because it feels like a death right. march by the time it's done. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's so, really sad. So you, do you stay there for the whole meet? No, I live in I live in the Boston area, so it's about a three-and-a-half-hour ride. Okay. Um, easy enough. Okay. 
I've actually been a real degenerate and done a done a day trip out there one time when I had no meetings on my calendar. So, uh, oh, that's good. So that's, that's our little secret. Three though. hours, three hours in, and you play the races and then drive home. Exactly. Okay? <laughs> that's real degeneracy, right I there. I like that. <laughs> I can remember one time when I was in high school, uh, Bill. We, um, I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. And we would go to Monmouth Park all the time, but uh, Atlantic City was open, and this was before the casinos came and everything. It was just the racetrack down there and the dilapidated mm. boardwalk so we drove down to atlantic city and there was a jockey named don Macbeth who has since passed away oh, but sure. i think he won yep. like six, six races we got on his bandwagon we weren't big betters or anything like that but as we're driving back we have some money in our pocket and one of the guys has a great idea let's go to yonkers <laughs> <laughs> so we just we just kept driving up the jersey turnpike yep. and we switched gears from thoroughbreds to a jughead yeah. and uh there we were <laughs> so and, when you say the word degenerate that comes to mind <laughs> b- bonus points for using the term jughead too by the right. way that's, that's very right. good <laughs> so uh, jim I, I you know i mentioned before we got started here that i'm a regular user of your sire ratings every year and that's one of your you know big publications but uh, you know you mentioned all these others that you do um and of course, you got started in this era, like you said, where you're using deep base and you're kind of hand entering things one by one. But now you've got a ton of data that's coming in there every day. Now, I'm an old operations guy, um, and I'm not going to ask you to give out any trade secrets, but how do you collect all this data? You, you must have a good amount of automation routines running to get you to the point where you can more editorialize it than have to oh, enter sure. it, right? Sure. Um, yeah, it's... Um I, I got to tell you though, it's 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 not been consistent over the years, um, and and that's one of the um, one of the issues, you know, with um, when you look at a business and you say, you know, what are your exposures mm-hmm. uh, in a business? Um, the data has been an issue um, for me over the last few years. So the evolution of it was this: that eventually, um, when I started doing multitude of tracks i had to find a source and i was lucky enough to have some contacts that were marketing my books through the racing forum and we we got into a royalty agreement where they they customized the the uh, feeds for me and then i would pull them down and import them into uh, eventually it was access and and then i i spent a fair amount of time and money with programmers to um run a, ser- a series of queries and, and develop the reports I needed to, to get them into a book format and pe- for people to read. Um, so that, that was the first, you know, iteration is mm-hmm. that we went with the racing form. Then the racing form got into a tussle with Equibase because uh, the industry was afraid that the racing form would hold them hostage for the data. They were the only data sources. So eventually Equibase took over that function and I don't think anybody out there is going to mind uh, from Equibase or whatever, but I slid under the radar with the racing form for like about five okay. to seven years where they continued to give me the money. I mean, give me the data and mm. I paid them the royalties, probably against what Equibase was trying to do. They wanted to get everybody under their Control license it. agreement. Yep. And when it came time to do that license agreement, they didn't quite understand the scope of my business or what I was using the data for. They were worried that I was going to reproduce past performances and, you know, all mm. sorts of stuff. And they, they were looking for like, 
I don't know, Bill, something like seventy five hundred to ten thousand dollars a month. Oh, which, which was, you know, that would have been, you know, I couldn't have done hit. it. There's yeah, no way, it's a big know? hit. Yeah, yeah, that was like you know eighty percent of my growth. So, <laughs> um, so I had to find another source, and I found a fellow uh, named Ed Bain. Okay, who. Uh, had battled with the Equibase people to, to, uh, he was a database collector as well. And so he, I, I worked a deal out with him, but he got sick and his programmer didn't keep up the data. So then I, I hooked up with, uh, Handicappers Data Warehouse, which is a licensed Equibase, um, you know, licensee, mm-hmm. and they sell their data to a lot of people. So that's where I'm at now. Um, but through it all, the format of what you get is is totally different from each provider. So yeah. I'll give you an example. One of the fields would be like, um, well, here, I have it right here. It's funny. So one of the fields would be uh, surface. So the way I would get surface would be either a D mm-hmm. or a T or an X for synthetic. So, you know, yep. it's pretty easy. Yep. So what these guys do is they put a code in there. One is fast dirt. Two is turf, three is wet dirt, and four is poly. Oh, wow. So then I have to go in then and clean that up and get it into just D, T, and X, which I can do. Yep. It's not a problem. Yep. Um, but it, it, it's about, it's funny that you're asking this because it's literally right near this time of year that I start mining all of that data that I get monthly. I, I compile mm-hmm. it monthly from a download, but it just sits there. I don't do anything with it. Okay. And then I, then I, then I have to mine it. And the biggest headache was uh, through the different iterations is that nobody spelled the trainer's name the same way. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and you would think that would be an easy one. Same, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you don't have it the same, what will happen is you'll get three different profile sheets. Let's say you're covering three meets at Gulfstream. Yep. And you got a guy named Dominic Chatino with it. With an, sometimes he had a, uh, um, a middle initial. Sometimes they call them Dominic. Sometimes they call them Dom. You know, oh, so man. I would wind up with his stats on for 2017. Then I have a new page for 2018 and another page for 2019. None of them combined because they're all different names. So I had to then go back and fix all of that. And it wasn't just him. There were probably dozens and dozens. Yeah, Finally, yeah. I got a programmer and we put together a table of the way it comes in and the way we want it to be, and it does a search and replace automatically to get it done. Okay. But it is a process. It is a process. So, how, Jim, how big is your staff that's doing all this? <laughs> it's me. Or is staff a strong word? <laughs> staff a strong word. <laughs> no, it, it's really, I've had Dennis Foley working with me. He is, gosh, Bill, I, I'm 62. He's probably 70 and change. He started with me, he worked for Gulfstream's customer service group way, way back, and I was looking for a guy to help me uh, publish the daily sheets and do selections, because I don't want to do that stuff. And he came aboard, and he was a transplanted Minnesotan who just couldn't get it hot enough in South Florida. (laughs) He just loved it. And we've been together ever since. And, um, you know, we, we worked out... Again, the evolution is we don't even have an office anymore. I'm calling you from my office in my home, and he works at his home. And then we have a staging area in Hollywood, Florida, where I bring uh, print copies of, of material, and okay. he binds them, and we ship them. We're, 
And I even print the stuff myself. I have a huge copier behind me um, that I can run off 100 pages a minute and print uh, oh, wow. okay. 30 or 40 books in, in a half hour so that I don't need to go anymore and rely on printers and print runs and, and all of that stuff. So we, we have fine-tuned our organization, and there have been many times when we've gone to lunch and we looked at each other and said, you know, maybe we need to hire somebody else and take this and take that. And he'll look at me, I'll look at him and say, you know, when you add one person, it's not linear, it's exponential. And you got all sorts of drama, you don't know what you're getting. And we look at each other and say, we'll do it ourselves. Yeah, they're just just draining your bottom line, Jim. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's not even a question of money, it's a question of of turmoil. (laughs) Okay, the the drama. (laughs) It's a drama. At this stage of the game, we just don't want to deal with it. Now, you asked me about the sire ratings and all of that. Yep. And I never mentioned any of that um, in the evolution of what happened because that was the last piece that came in, and that was a guy named Mike Helm. Right. And I got I got to tell you I don't I don't know if he's still alive, and uh, shame on me for not reaching out to him as I should every year just to see how he's doing. Um, but he he started what's called Sire Ratings, the mm-hmm. book, and again. It was a fellow like John Andrew who did not have a lot of computer savvy or anything like that. And he just, man, he just did this off of result charts and did it all himself. That's did amazing. the grading himself. That's amazing. It, it was, it was mind boggling to me when I, when I uh, hooked up with him and I was selling his material and he came to me just like John Andrew. I never mentioned that John Andrew came to me and said, you know, Jim, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I, I, Okay. He had okay. gone to the racing forum, the, the racing forum to be his publisher, and they drove him absolutely crazy. He couldn't stand the corporate environment, and he just gave up on it. And he and he basically said, "You do the book from now on." And I said, "I'll do that as long as you'll be part of it and allow me to pay you for it." And uh, with with very few exceptions, um, he he has done that um, for me. But Mike Helm was the same way. He he came to me um, and said, "You know, you're selling a lot of my material." do you want to just take over the whole operation? And so I went out to California a couple of times to meet with him and, uh, and we, we came up with a deal, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I paid him a pretty good royalty over a few years to, to transition. And then I, I sort of tweaked what he did because I was able to do a lot more uh, with the computer. For example, I can now tell you how certain sires and dam sires do on off turf which I think is a really cool, um, it's a big one, you know, cool barometer mm-hmm. and, and a help to handicappers on days when, you know, there's off turf, you right. know, because there, it, there's not every sire is equal, you know, and, and some are really good and some are not good. So that was really cool. And I was able then to, um, look at turf sprinters and, and okay. see if there's certain sires that have a high percentage that all they do is uh, win turf sprints. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that kind of stuff. And um, so it was, it, it was another evolution. And that product has done very well because on all of this stuff, we were able to take it from just a book and convert it to another product that comes out daily that right. allows the handicapper right. not to have to go through the book and look everything up. It's called the daily sheet. Yeah, we sheet for the uh, for the for the meat, and then the sire ratings online for um, the sire ratings. And uh, we don't do every single meat, 
But we're covering the major ones, and that's really what people want. So. No, as someone who is used to flipping through the book, the daily sheets are, are fantastic for the big meets like the Saratoga meet, uh, Gulfstream, you know, yep. and obviously you cover several. And, and you know, uh, Jim, I'm going to give a little plug here for the SIA ratings, okay? Um, one of the things that I notice and appreciate about the SIA ratings is that, in my opinion, you are very judicious with the ratings that you give, whether it be for first-time starters or class, you know, uh, wet track ratings, turf ratings, et cetera. So, you know, for instance, I'll take first-time starters, especially with two-year-olds, right? Um, you know, if for a horse to get a, for a sire or a damn sire to get a B or an A, you know, top rating there, that's very rare. Um, I think you'll agree with me on that one. And so I have had, I had a couple instances just this past summer, uh, one at Del Mar, one at Saratoga, where, you know, an A shows up on the damn sire side and a B on the sire side or vice versa or both A's. I'm like, I'm just going to bet that one. I'm not even going to look at anything else, honestly. Um, and right. it doesn't, it doesn't happen all the time. Right. It does, but, um, uh, there was a, at Santa Anita this past winter, there was a 31 to one winner with A's on both sides. So right. I'm just right. going to put that plug in there for you. Well, you know, you'd love to have that happen, you know, super regularly, but it just doesn't. Yeah. No, uh, right. Right. Especially with smaller fields and with, with a lot of information out there. And that's what makes, that's what makes that so um, so much fun when when a, c- a customer or a reader gets that and um, is able to turn that into a major score. You know, let's say it was a you know something that the, uh, that was anchoring a pick five or something. You know, and you were yep. able to hit that sixty dollar horse, and then you were able to hit the pick five. Uh, that's 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 very gratifying to us in, in doing that. And um, you know, the grading. Is very is very interesting. Is that and and I've screwed it up a couple times. I really have. I had one year. It was two years ago, and uh, one of my loyalest of customers, Brad Morgan, and his wife Missy, they they not only helped me, you know, proof my books and edit, mm-hmm. um, but he he's handicapping Saratoga, and he says every time there's an off track, a sloppy track, I'm not getting anything but C's and C pluses. And I know I had noticed that myself uh, yep. during I think it was the Derby weekend or something that was wet, and I said, you know what, Brad, you're absolutely right. I I must not have done enough because in any given race, except for first time starter ratings, because that's a little different. But mm-hmm. if you're if you're in a race where there are ten horses and it's and it's an off track, you would think that just by the belt curve method of grading back in, you know, elementary school, that you would get maybe one A or a B plus, maybe a B or a B plus, and then the rest would be C's and C pluses and a D or an F, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And that's what I strive for. So what I do is I do the grading first based on a on a on a parameter, you know, first time starters, let's say 30 percent plus with his first time starters, you know, it's an A plus. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then I'll go in and segregate out if I have 2000 or 2500 sires, I'll look at the most active sires, which might only be a thousand of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comprise 80% of the uh, of the of the sample. And then I will grade those and take a look at the distribution and then make some tweaking along the way and it's okay. been much more okay. much more successful that way, uh, I think, uh, in doing it. 
No, it, it's actually a really good observation because I did notice at one point too that the wet tracks were you were coming up with C and C plus all the time, and and um, it became yeah. difficult to say, yeah. well, you know, what's really you know it, 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 what's really happening here. But yeah, I wanted to go back to you brought up turf sprints, and this is a question a friend of mine and, and I have had. Um, with the proliferation of turf sprints, do you feel like that's impacted your overall turf ratings? Um, I know obviously you separate out the turf sprint category, you know, as a specialty, let's say with the, with the little SP indicator there, but has that, cause, cause those are just, they're very different than turf routes, right? So do you feel like those have impacted your turf ratings overall? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because the, the actual turf rating is designed um, to be applied to um, a younger horse, maybe once in a while a five-year-old that has never seen never the turf. Never tried it, yeah. But it's making, that is making its first start on the turf. And granted, it's probably um, a little easier to win a, as a first-time starter going in a turf sprint than a turf route. So I, I will give them that mm-hmm. um, because they might not like the turf that much, but by the time they figure it out, the race is over. Right. over. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. Whereas they have time to think about it in the route. But yep. I really think that, that if a, if a sire is uh, throwing off those genes, that it's going to, it's going to translate whether it's on the, it's on the sprinting side or the turfing side, uh, the routing side. Okay. Uh, okay. But, that will have to just wait in abeyance as more and more of these races are run and I'm able to, to see. Um, and, and the, the telltale sign would be if I'm seeing a lot of sires that were, let's say C's and D's, mm-hmm. you know, when turf routes were more prevalent and then all of a sudden they're becoming B's and B pluses. Um, that might give okay. an indication that maybe, maybe it's, it's skewing a little bit. So, okay. We'll have to we'll have to stay tuned on the next podcast for that. <laughs> well, it, that actually, your answer is good because it doesn't. One of the other things I think is really valuable about the sire ratings is that you're not afraid, as you said, when you're talking about off tracks, to say, "Hey, you know what? In the past, uh, we did it this way. We're changing our methodology because of this data point or that data point that we found." And, and I think that's really important that you're not fixed in time. You're you're oh, absolutely you know, constantly no, and, thinking uh, about. I- I, yeah. And I listen to the customers, um, you know, not many of them will write in, you know, and you know, the old rule is the, whoever writes in is going to be crabby and, and, and complaining. <laughs> right. uh, luckily with my, with my customer base, that's not true. I, I get all sorts of great inquiries, um, suggestions, compliments. Rarely do I get, um, except perhaps maybe sometimes it's a little difficult to use our website. If you don't really know what you're doing, do I get like a nasty comment? Um, that kind of thing, you know, or I, most of my customers know that we're not, we're not going to, you know, fund their IRAs, um, and their retirement. They're, they're using the information. A lot of them are doctors they're lawyers. They're, you know, it, it's funny. I get a lot of doctors call me and I say to myself, geez, you know, this guy's not wrapped too tight. I, I hope I, I hope I hope I'm not running into that down here when I get operated on. So, you know that, that he that he went that he went over six at uh, you know at Saratoga that yeah. afternoon. I used to work for a brokerage house, Jim, and and I used to say we had, doctors were a big part of our customer base, and I used to say if you wanted to be a stockbroker, why did you go to medical school? You know, <laughs> right there you go, there you go, exactly, exactly. So, uh, but I overall, I, you know, I have a great loyal. Uh, customer group and the proof is that while the industry is going down my sales have have remained 
remarkably static, maybe a slightly down, but not not significantly where I'm saying, wow, this is really this is really bad. Um, and the Breeders' Cup is is one of those events that just continues to capture everybody's attention, and uh, uh, they 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 love the uh, the feel of it. Although I will say, just like we talked about with Saratoga, going to a two day format with 14 races, huge I mistake. Think was a little, yeah. It was an overkill. And yeah. yeah, I'll give you an example of a race that it, it killed. That I love this race. It used to be my favorite race on the Breeders' Cup was the Breeders' Cup Sprint. Right. And you invariably would have 14 horses in that field. You would have a mixture, because there was no Philly and Mare Sprint, there mm-hmm. was no Dirt Mile. Yep. So you would have a, a bunch of seven furlong wannabes that would always take money, that never could win. You would have the Phillies with no place to go, that would always run second at big prices and maybe win. It was so exciting to, to handicap oh, that race. I used to race. love it. Yep. I used to love it. And now you're lucky if you can get eight horses in there and you're getting nothing but chalkers. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, it's a shame. It really is a shame. Uh, and not that I don't mind the Philly and Mayor Sprint. I think that's a good race on its own. But it's it's just what has happened, you know, to the, to the game a little bit. I, I can see them opening them up and having the two-year-olds on a Friday for – Four two-year-old races, maybe five, uh, with a turf sprint, and then having having the other races on uh, on the Saturday. But man, it's it, it, it's a killer. And then what they do to even just milk it even more is they throw three undercard races on the top of <laughs> right. nine right. Grade One Breeders' Cup races. I mean, you know, you're starting the West Coast. You're starting at ten o'clock in the morning. Right, right. It's, it's brutal. <laughs> no, you, the, uh, that's one of my favorite points. You've been the dilution of the sprint with the, as you, and not just the dirt mile. Um, it, I mean, the dirt mile is actually taken away from both the classic and from the sprint, but you made a that's really correct. good point is that the Philly and mayor sprint, the addition of that took away from right. the sprint also. Um, it, and the Phillies exactly. and mayors had acquitted themselves quite well in the sprint over the years. So there was no, no and then you know, it's, it's, a snow, it's a snowball too, because then the Philly and mayor sprint also drew from the distance. Right, that's because right. Because if, yeah. if you were a seven furlong to eight furlong Philly, you had no other place to go but to the dispatch. So. Yeah, and it, it raises the question, too, uh, why is the Philly and Mare Sprint seven furlongs and the male is six, too? There's, there's just, uh, yeah. It, well, like I said earlier, nothing exceeds like excess, right? Um, so, you know, they, they're having a great card with seven races, so they up it to nine and now 14, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Um, so, Jim, speaking of the Beers Cup, you obviously, you host a big bash every year at Mohegan Sun, correct? Yes. Yeah. Love it. Uh, it it's, it's really, um, and that, that also adds to the, um, not stress, but the, the workload. I was going to uh, ask, yeah. Because yeah. not only am I trying to get out the crushing zone and the selections, then I got to get on a plane and, and make sure that everybody's got their rooms okay and. And then we're hosting anywhere from 35 to 50 handicappers in seminars, uh, in a conference room in the morning. We pool our money. We come up with pick six. Well, you know, our pick six play was, I think it was $15,000 this year. So we're putting in some sizable money. Yeah. And we have it at the Mohegan Sun, who they have done uh, a, a great, great job of embracing uh, what was like a little idea that I had which sprung up from going to the Breeders' Cup and just not not enjoying the experience and then hearing the um, 
the, the players say, you know, the seats were so expensive. The hotels are gouging us, you know, this and that. So I said, why not save that thousand dollars that you're plowing into that? And let's go someplace where we're, we're by ourselves yep. pretty much. And, you know, you plug it, you, you, you push it into the, into the windows, you know, where it right, belongs. Right, 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 um, right. And um, I went to the most in sun. We, the first one we had was down here at Gulfstream in a, in a suite. Okay. And then I, um, I, I approached the Mohegan Sun. We started out with maybe 15, 20 guys. And then the worst thing that could possibly happen to us, we hit the pick six. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, everybody wanted to come and try to recreate that. Uh, of course, okay. that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. A tough one. We almost had it. We, we, we got close. If we, if we had gone one more deeper in the distaff and, and taken blue prize, um, we would have hit it. But it was, it was 55000 as opposed to you know, a zillion dollars like it usually is. Yep. Yep. Um, but anyway, the Mohegan Sun now has, has totally embraced it. They, um, they take care of my players. Uh, they give them a nice discounted room. I mean, it's still one ninety nine a night, but that's pretty good at the Mohegan Sun. That's a good rate on the weekend. That's a good rate on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. weekend. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, we have an absolute blast. They, on, on Friday, we're in the race book together. On Saturday, they, they open up the ballrooms and have a huge Breeders' Cup party hosted by a guy that you probably know, Mike Matansky. Um, from WEI, of course. Yeah, yes, from yeah. WEI, right. Yep. The Mutt yep. Man, right. So we've been doing that for years. He hosts it, and I'm on the dais, on, on, uh, and we get up, and we all we do is spend maybe five minutes before each race and handicap. And the last two years, we've had uh, Anthony the Big Ace, the Beal, He's, he has um, been a guest as well. York. Yeah, he's been a guest on the podcast. Yeah, and, yep. and you know, I never met really Anthony before. He is a great, great guy. He's a, a great guy. Fun person yeah. to be around, yep. and um, um, not pompous, not condescending. Um, you know, I used to find some of these racing form guys. You know, they they just didn't they didn't give you any respect, as Rodney would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Anthony Anthony's great, and we're. Uh, we're hoping that maybe this is the team that we have and we'll do the Derby together and uh, we'll be back again for the Breeders' Cup, which will be in Keeneland next year. Uh, so that should be That's that correct. should be interesting. Actually, you remind me. So I met Mike uh, two years ago in the backyard at Saratoga one weekend, and this was actually before I started the podcast. But it's a good reminder that I should reach out to him to be a guest. Um, and Absolutely, yeah. And, and I've yeah. had Anthony on, and, and he is actually, uh, I'm glad you mentioned him, he is a very generous and genuine person. Um, Absolutely. I, 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 uh, I really enjoyed uh, spending time with him and getting to know him. Um, Jim, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You mentioned Duke University, and you were at sports editor at the newspaper there. So I'm guessing, given your age, and I'm relatively the same age, I'm guessing that you were the sports editor during the Gene Banks, Mike Jaminski, Jim Spinarco kind of renaissance of Duke basketball. Is that right? Bingo. You got it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's let's do a little. Uh, I always like to kind of when local sports uh, give little quizzes to people. Um, so, what's your favorite era? Is it the is it the Gene Banks, etc.? Is it the uh, Danny Ferry, Quinn Snyder? Is it Christian Leitner, Grand Hill, Bobby Hurley? Oh Shane, boy, Shane Battier, Elton Brand. What do, what do you think? Well, I lived through the um, through the Gene Banks. Anarcho Jaminski group, and you know that was really that was pre Coach K. That was a guy right. named Bill Foster. Right. And Bill Foster, uh, Duke basketball was really in bad shape. It really was really in bad. Shape. Yep. And Bill Foster literally 
went to every frat house and dormitory and had like a town meeting and tried to get the people interested in Duke basketball. He just did a great job. And I'll tell you a very quick, funny story is that my junior year was 1978. And again, I was an accounting major and um, we, I didn't have any aspirations to be uh, into journalism. Two years ahead of me was John Feinstein, who went on oh, to sure. write yeah. many, many books yeah. and become a, a major columnist for the Washington Post. In between um, us and him was a pre-med student named Bill Collins, who simply was sitting there when Feinstein left, and they, and they said to him, you have to be the editor. You're the only one left. <laughs> um, so he he took uh, myself and Ed Turlington and deputized us as assistants, and we got to cover a fair amount of basketball games because he was pre-med. So we go to spring break, and we go to the ACC tournament, and I'm in Florida, and Ed's, Ed's not uh, anywhere near the uh, mm-hmm. situation either. Bill's, Bill's covering the tournament. We win the tournament. Now, back then, you win the tournament. That's how you got, that's how you got in. First right. 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 So now Bill had to go to someplace. When we got back to school, he had to go away for the weekend. And we won again. And then he goes to another weekend away. And we went again. And the place is going crazy. And it's just nobody's ever seen anything like it in many, many years at Duke. And he comes back white as a ghost. And he says, guys, I'm going to flunk out of school. We made the final four. And I can't go. (laughs) You guys have to go. So I look at Ed. Ed looks at me. And I don't know if you remember this movie, The Verdict. um, Oh, sure. Paul Newman. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the guy from the jury comes back and goes, is there any cap to the amount of money we can reward? <laughs> right, right, right. right. You know, and Jack line. Ward, he looked at the sky like, right, real <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was Ed and I, and uh, we just had a blast. We we uh, we both were able to go, and it was beyond anything that we could imagine. We beat Notre Dame, and then we lost to Kentucky in the finals with Goose Givens. Right, yeah, that, yeah. Going yeah. for like 44 points. Yep. Uh, but... The, the guys uh, on that team were very, very genuine, nice guys. I, I, I shouldn't have because I was a reporter, but I was also a student. And Spinarka would say, do you want to come with me and a couple of the guys in my frat and go for pizza tonight? You know? Oh, wow. And that kind of yeah. stuff. He wasn't currying favor or anything. He was no, just, no, right. That's right. just the, the way the guy kid. was. We were, yeah. both, we were both from New Jersey. And, um, and, and Zeminski was great because he was Polish. And when there would be a timeout or something on the floor, somebody got hurt or something, he'd come over to the scorer's table and he'd sit right next to me on and put his butt down on the on the on the uh, um, desk there. And he go, "Mae, did you hear this one about the two Polish guys?" You know, he'd get crashed, <laughs> you know. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And and so that era, you know, was the one that I was more in tune with. But I have to say, I, I really enjoyed the uh, the Grand Hill era and yeah. Shane Battier. Shane Battier is down here working for the Heat, and okay. he is uh, just a true, true professional and gentleman. Um, and the thing I'll say about the Duke, the Duke graduates, for the most cases, um, they're all pretty sharp guys. You know, they become sports announcers. They're very, you know, uh, functional in the in the in the real world and stuff like that. So it's it's good to see them. And man, there's a lot of basketball players now that are in the NBA, and they're all in the Pelicans, for crying out loud. So. <laughs> Zion, uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. No, it, yeah it, so. You made a good point about Duke basketball, and it's one that resonates with me as a, as a New England Patriots fan. Back in that era, 
uh, that you talked about with the Renaissance with Gene Banks and Jaminski and Spinarco. Duke had been in the in the in the, the bottom of the barrel for a for a long, long time. And you know, I'm a Patriots fan. People will say to me, "Oh, I'm, I hate the Patriots," and I'll say, "You don't understand how bad that team was <laughs> for many, many years." So I make no right. apologies about enjoying it. And <laughs> hey, and the Patriots are only making up for years and years of losing with the Red Sox. So, <laughs> but you know, it's interesting you you point that out because you know people say, "Well, you know, look at Coach K. You know, he gets the best and the best." Well. What happens is, and it happens in every kind of situation, including horse racing, when you're successful, you're going to get successful people drawn to your right. organization. Right. You're going to get the best players. You're going to keep on winning. And then the recruits are going to say, I want to go there. That's where I want to go. If I yeah. have one year, yeah. If I have one year that I'm going to waste in college, I want Coach K to be my coach. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's the same thing with, it used to be with Todd Fletcher. It used to be with Chad Brown, Bob Baffert. Now I'm seeing it with Jason Service. You you know, the owners gyrate to the guys that are winning. Right, right. Now, they might be pushing the envelope medicine-wise, but they are winning, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, as they say. And the, and the, and the Patriots are the same way. No, no that's, you know, they, players want to go there. Right, right. 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 They just want to play there. Yeah, you know, and they'll buy into the system and everything, yeah. Thanks again to Jim for his time. You can find more information about his publications at his website, www.proghandicap.com. Join us next week when Bill Heller, longtime racing writer, journalist, and author, and I discuss the hot topic of Lasix and its use and abuse. In the meantime, may the horse be with you. <laughs>